Welcome. This is Sheila Murthy, president and founder of the Murthy Law Firm. I'm delighted and honored to welcome each of you to today's teleconference, and we have two of our brilliant Murthy Law Firm attorneys joining us for today's topic, which is the Visa Bulletin, what the numbers are and what it means for you and your business. Obviously, we understand that many of you have differ differing levels of knowledge, and so we're going to go over some of the overview information, which we hope will reinforce the information that some of you already know. And for those of you who don't know, it will be extremely useful and beneficial as we discuss some more complex nuances and subtleties of the issue. We also have some good news because we just got an update from the U.S. Department of State Mr. Charles Oppenheim, the chief of the Immigrant Visa Control Unit, that will share information. I don't know if the news is as good as the fact that the news is good news in the sense we have the latest and greatest information to share with you. So what's the Visa Bulletin all about, you may wonder. As you know, as many of you may know, the U.S. Department of State publishes each month a bulletin which generally goes out around the 15th of each month, between the 10th and the 15th. It's very, very helpful in terms of understanding the movement of priority dates in the permanent residence or green card process. The United States, as you know, limits the number of individuals who can immigrate to the U.S. each year on a permanent basis. And even in other ba non-immigrant bases, but particularly like H-1, but definitely in the immigrant quota system. The system for monitoring and controlling the annual limits involves using of visa numbers. Sometimes we call them immigrant visa numbers to distinguish them from the non-immigrant visa numbers. The visa bulletin issued by the U.S. Department of State advises us on a monthly basis whether or not there are visa numbers available for a particular person with a particular priority date, which is also referred to as the cutoff date. So this teleconference Dana DeLott and Kevin Andrews will discuss the employment-based immigrant visa numbers and quota information only. We won't be delving into the entire family-based processing and their timeframes. The contents of the visa bulletin are determined by the supply of visa numbers and the demand for those numbers. So the dates in the visa bulletin are selected by the Department of State based on input that they receive from USCIS and other sources in an effort to remain and use the annual numerical limitations and restrictions on the different quotas depending on the country of birth, et cetera. So Dana, if now that I've sort of shared this overview with our incredible company clients, what exactly does the visa bulletin do and what is it and how can the employer sort of look at this whole number system? Right. The visa bulletin, although behind it, it it's all very complex, but at the heart of, of the visa bulletin is a chart. And it's a chart in grid form, and there are either dates or letters on the grid. And at the top of the visa bulletin, it states the month that it's applicable to. And it always applies from the beginning of the, of the particular month, so from the first of that month all the way through until the end of the month. And as Sheila mentioned, the Department of State issues a visa bulletin in advance, usually on the 10th or the 15th of the prior month, but you do have to be careful and only apply it in the particular month uh, where it's valid. 
Okay, just to be sure to put into context what Dana is explaining to us, you should have received the link for the September 2012 and the December 2011 visa bulletins. So if you can follow along with Dana as she's speaking, that would be much more helpful for all of you. Right, and we'll be referring to them in more detail a little later. So most green card cases end with the I-485 filing as the last stage. For individuals outside of the U.S., the final stage is an immigrant visa application at the U.S. consulate abroad. But since most cases um, for, for employees here in the U.S. Uh, are going to be using the I-45 process, we're going to focus on that. And we do a lot of consular processing cases when people are stuck outside or go to work outside. But Dana is right. Majority are the adjustments. Right. I think there's statistics where maybe only 10 percent or yeah. something are, are, maybe not even are 10 percent outside. Yeah. So that's why, again, we're focusing mostly on the I-485 uh, process. Mm -hmm. So for that purpose, the Visa Bulletin lets us know which green card cases can move forward to that final stage with the filing of the I-485. The Visa Bulletin contents also determine whether an I-485 case, once it's been filed, will be eligible for approval in any given month. So the Visa Bulletin is key to I-485 case timing and approval. For I-45 cases, it operates both as the front door to permit filings to be made, as well as the back door to determine which ones can be approved. So for employers, the contents of the visa bulletin is extremely important because it, it impacts their employees' motivations and, in some cases, their ability to change jobs. Aha, uh -huh. so that's the crux of the issue. For the employer, it's the date of the movement because that's going to determine whether the employee will be likely to stay or come back to you, as we'll explain in, the, in a little bit about EB2, EB3, and all of that. So, Kevin, just to explain all of this, can, we, can you share an example of some kind? Absolutely, Sheila. Yeah, I think it's a good idea um, to look at an example so we can take some of these concepts that you and, and Dana have kind of uh, laid out for us. So you had mentioned the whole concept of uh, priority dates and, uh, and cutoff dates. So uh, if the listeners could take a look at the December 2011 visa bulletin that we had sent around, um, let's take an example of an, uh, a foreign national from the country of India who has an, an EB2 case. Uh, so just real quickly, an EB2 case is for someone who has an advanced degree or exceptional ability um, that is usually established at the labor certification stage of a case. What kind of Or uh, bachelor's uh, in five years. Uh, or bachelor's in five years uh, would be equivalent to that advanced degree. Um, but assuming you have a case that is uh, for in the EB2 category, if we look at the bulletin, the cutoff date is March 15th, 2008. So if we look in the in the grid for employment base two on the x-axis and then on the y-axis uh, India you'll see March 15 2008 so this is the this date is known as the cutoff date it means that if uh, an employee one of your employees uh, filing their 45 application in December 2011 if that person is from India with an EB2 case and has a date prior to this cutoff date of March 15 2008 they would be considered current uh, or, or currently eligible to file their I-45 application. Um, many of you might have employees that are uh, in EB-2 classification or and some might have EB-3 cases. If you take a look right below the EB-2 India uh, uh, cutoff date, you'll see the EB-3 cutoff date for India, which is August 1st, 2000, August, uh, uh, 1st 2002. So, August 2002 compared to March 2008, it's a longer wait time because there are more cases in the EB-3 uh, inventory and uh, just that's why the demand is so much greater and processing time is going to be a lot longer for an EB-3 case compared to an EB-2 case. 
Um, so when you, when you take a look at the comparison between EB2 and EB3, you might see the reason why many of your employees may push for the EB2 case. One other contrast, in addition to the difference between EB2 and EB3, is uh, a contrast in time. So if we can compare this December 2011 visa bulletin to the other bulletin that we had sent out to you for September 2012, we notice that there is a U listed for EB2 India for September 2012. That U means that there are no visa numbers available uh, for, the, for the current time. They're not accepting any cases. Uh, with any priority date for this category at that time. So compared because to numbers are unavailable. Completely unavailable. That's right, Sheila. So um, even though the EB3, EB3 hasn't moved very much since December 2011. EB3 moved to, up to October 2002 from August uh, 2002 in that uh, approximately nine-month uh, time period. But EB2 went completely unavailable. So you can see that uh, when you compare and contrast EB categories and then also different times of the month, you can see that there's a lot of um, erratic movement in the, in the visa bulletin. So Dana, how, how do we interpret all this information? Okay, so the, as we've explained, the, the whole visa bulletin system is based upon annual allocations and annual limitations on the number of people who can immigrate permanently to the U.S. each year. And these annual limitations are further allocated based upon categories known as preferences. And the preferences are EB1 through EB5 for employment-based first through fifth preference. These categories are listed vertically on the left-hand side of the visa bulletin chart. And those interested in I know we probably have some number crunchers out there. People who are interested in exact numbers provided by law um, can get the, and the percentages and how it's all allocated, can find that information in the visa bulletin itself. Uh, and that's always linked through murthy.com. But in any event, for today, it's enough to know that there are simply different allocations and percentages given by category. And then in addition to those limitations, there are further restrictions based on country. There's a limit of 7% of the visa numbers which can be used by individuals from any particular country. And those cases are counted against or charged to the 7% country limit, usually based upon the person's country of birth. There are some exceptions to that, but most of the time it is country of birth. So because there are con per country limitations, at the top of the chart horizontally, there are names of certain countries. And the first group is all chargeability areas, except those listed. We sometimes call that rest of the world. And then that includes every country, except those that are specifically listed. And the listed countries, as you can see, are mainland China, India, Mexico, and the Philippines. And for each type of case and country of origin, the visa bulletin contains a corresponding date, or in some cases, a letter. And just like Kevin went through for you, you go you know, to the top of the chart and to the side and find which little grid box applies to the particular case. The dates in the boxes are called cutoff dates. And again, as we've explained, the cutoff date is tied to the green card concept of a priority date. The priority date is, you, is the date that the first filing in any particular case is made. It's usually either the labor certification or in some cases the, the I-140. So that's the, that sort of sets a place in line with a priority date. And visa numbers are available only if the priority date of a particular case is prior to the cutoff date. It has to be the day before the cutoff date or earlier. 
So it's really good news if I'm the person, the applicant, that wants to file. If I see the word C for current, that means I have the numbers, as opposed right. to U, which is really bad news, means it's totally unavailable. There's no date because... Current is the best. Current, <laughs> current me, the C in the little box, means current, which means they have enough visa numbers for everybody. You don't have to worry about the priority date issue. The U is... What the can worst. you just explain? Right, which is where all the numbers are are gone for some brief period. You have to wait until a new allocation comes in. And the main reason, I think, based on what Kevin explained before, is December 2011. It wouldn't make common sense that December 2011 is better than September 2012. But because September is the end of the fiscal year, because the USCIS fiscal year starts on October 1st and gets over in September each year. And the quota, the total number of seven that Dana just referred to, is actually been exhausted by that time, which is what causes the unavailability of the numbers. Right. So, they simply used up all their numbers for the year earlier than expected, which is why that particular category ran out at the end of the year. And a big reason why we wanted to do this session was because every single time people say, can you explain it? Why does this mean? What happens? Why? How can the numbers be ahead? And then the gate close after with the date before. And it seems to make no sense. But hopefully, with the very coherent, logical, systematic analysis that both Dana and Kevin have shared with you, it will really help you to understand the process. So, Kevin, to continue the discussion, how are the cutoff dates set? Sure. So we've talked about what the cutoff dates are. And so let's just talk briefly about how Department of State uh, establishes these these cutoff dates in the visa bulletin. Um, essentially, just the basics is it's it's basically based on estimates of supply and demand. So the State Department reviews their past pratter, patterns and practices of, uh, of visa allocation. They look at prior use. They look at uh, that to determine the estimates for future use and also uh, estimates of demand based on the cases that have been filed and pending with USCIS. So uh, the State Department uses all this information to decide what the maximum amount of, uh, of visa numbers should be available without exceeding their supply. Uh, so again, as, as we have mentioned before, the State Department, if they have enough numbers to meet that demand, you'll see a C in that category. You'll see the C for current. If a particular category exceeds the supply for the visa numbers for, uh, in that category, uh, then that particular category would be oversubscribed, and that's when you'll see a situation where you'll either have a cutoff date or just a U for a complete unavailability. The Department of State's goal here is to make sure that they establish a cutoff date that's set at the point that will allow the most number of eligible cases to obtain visa numbers. So if they, through their calculus, decide and, and, and figure out that they have about 3,000 numbers for a particular category, then they're going to open up the priority date so that everybody except the 3,000, and, and let's say 5,000 people are waiting in that particular category, they're going to open up the numbers so that uh, the 3,000 and first person is cut off. So everybody in that first 3,000 uh, because they have the supply to do 3,000 numbers, uh, will get a visa number, and then the cutoff will be established at the 3,001st person. So um, for those of you that are interested in trying to understand this a little bit more, because we're talking about statistics and numbers and it can get a bit wonkish, uh, there is a State Department document called the Operation of the Immigrant uh, Numerical Control System. If you Google the Operation of the Im Immigrant Numerical Control System, you will see this uh, two or three page document from the State Department that uh, explains how this calculation is done. Thanks, Kevin. And I think really to help drive this home, we can just go over a couple of examples before we run into the next section. Dana? Yes. And so 
many employers out there who sponsor green card cases for their employees are going to be faced with discussions about the appropriate category for the case. And when dealing with PERM labor certifications, they're going to either be filed in EB-2 or EB-3. And the December 2011 Visa Bulletin, it helps to shed light on why the difference in category can be life-changing for the employee. The cutoff date in EB-3 for December 2011 for people from the rest of the world, the countries that aren't specifically listed, was January 15, 2006. For India, the cutoff date in EB-3 was August 1, 2002, and China came in at September 8, 2004. This means that every single person with a case filed in the EB-3 category faced years and years of waiting time before their green card cases could move forward and be eligible for approval. That is in contrast to the EB-2 category for the rest of the world, which was current and typically is going to show is current. Uh, the September visa bulletin is, uh, is different, September 2012, but that's really very much an aberration. So just most of the time, rest of the world is going to be current. And India and China are oversubscribed in EB-2 with cutoff dates of March 15, 2008. But obviously, March 15, 2008 in EB-2 is far more favorable than the EB-3 cutoff dates uh, that we mentioned previously. So it's a difference of many, many years waiting time uh, for the employee, all depending on whether their case is EB-3 or EB-2. Um, okay, so I'll tell you what, I know we have to, we were thinking of an analogy similar to a bakery or deli, but because we're almost at 20 minutes at this point, we're trying to wrap up between 30 and 40 minutes because we're very sensitive to the issue of this being uh, sort of a lunch break time. Um, so Dana and Kevin have both explained the difference in EB-2 and EB-3 cutoff dates and what it means for you all as companies, businesses, or employers. So the proper category of a green card case depends upon the educational and experience requirements for the particular position, as we all know. Details regarding eligibility for the EB-2 category are obviously a separate topic. Individuals who have a level of knowledge and experience that qualifies them for the EB-2 will look for a position and a job with an employer that, that can sponsor them in the EB-2 category. And as an employer, we all need to understand the employee's motivation, which Dana previously referred to in order to have an EB-2 case, which is again based upon the cutoff dates in the visa bulletin and the almost endless years of waiting time in many EB-3 cases. So many longer term employees who have green card cases that have made it through the first two stages, meaning the PERM and the I-140, and now they're just waiting for the date to become current. Thus, many foreign nationals who have been able to move and they even up what they call upgrade, which really doesn't exist by law, but we use that term sort of loosely, the EB-3 case to a fresh EB-2 case when they next file another case in a fresh perm and then transfer that old priority date. So employers need to be accurate and consistent when we file any perm labor certification with regard to what are the true minimum job requirements for a particular position with a particular employer. We don't want to in any way suggest that an employer should inflate any of their requirements in order to make the employees happy by filing an EB-2 case if it's not absolutely bona fide and legitimate. An employer needs to understand the likely long-term 
and experienced employees who would be more willing and able to stick around, assuming they feel supported in their ability to work in a more sophisticated position. Right. What we're trying to explain is that employers need to be aware that a lot of their people who may have these old EB3 cases are looking to this upgrade strategy as a way to expedite everything. And if they can't get it through their current employer, they are looking for other employers that can offer them jobs at the EB2 level and would be willing to sponsor them at, at that point. And exactly. And we have seen some of our major company clients have actually said, we're willing to change our company policy just to file, you know, 50, 60, 100 new EB2 cases for prior EB3 employees. And you know what? It's a win-win. You keep the employee happy. The company continues to do business. And with many of the businesses, let's face it, our most valuable assets in almost every business uh, in the world, but particularly in America, are our employees. So if we can keep them challenged and happy and motivated and feel valued, they're more likely to stay with us. And this is a simple way you can do it. And if your law firm's been working with you, has been already doing it, great. And if not, the multi law firm's always ready because we do a lot of these kinds of cases. Um, one thing to talk, one thing to follow up on your uh, comment about upgrade cases, Sheila, is mm-hmm. uh, you know there's two ways to get to EB2. I think sometimes we we forget that uh, EB2 is based on having an advanced degree or being uh, foreign national with exceptional ability. When when somebody already has an EB3 case filed for them, if they're going to try and upgrade based on having the advanced degree, uh, a new labor certification would have to be filed. But if they're going to upgrade to an EB2 case based on having exceptional ability, it's possible to, to, uh, to do that based on the existing labor and just refiling an I-140 for that individual. Now, so then the real question is, is this someone, a person, is this a real person who has a, uh, exceptional ability as defined by, uh, by, by uh, immigration law? And basically, exceptional ability is defined as somebody who has uh, skills that are significantly above others uh, in their field. So certainly, if someone comes to you with, with a, a situation and an upgrade is being discussed, that's a possible thing to explore about whether or not this person has a, a exceptional ability, and it might be a fast track to an uh, upgrade case. And for this you exceptional too. ability is completely different from the extraordinary ability and the other what we talk exceptional in the EB2 and IW context. This is more like ten years of work experience, other criteria. So can you just sort of R- go over? Yeah. It? So some of the criteria, the uh, Department of Labor has their own exceptional ability for by passing a labor, and that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about exceptional ability uh, for EB2 purposes, which is different from what you had mentioned about extraordinary ability, which is EB1. But the basics for exceptional ability, there, there are some regulatory criteria that you had mentioned, uh, 10 plus years of experience, uh, membership in a professional association. Uh, we do have an old teleconference where we discuss some of the information specifics about exceptional ability. Uh, and our firm has actually been successful in filing a couple of these cases too. Um, but you know, meeting the regulatory criteria is one part, but I think the, the core is just in relation to others in your field, how are you significantly better? I think uh, if we focus on that, we might be able to identify a lot of those cases that can get the easier uh, EB2 upgrade. Thank you, Kevin. So now we'll quickly have Dana and Kevin go over the job changes under the American Competitiveness in the 21st Century Act, known as AC21. So Dana is going to discuss a little bit about retrogression, job changes under AC21, and Kevin will talk about how to be a smarter employer. The contents of the visa bulletin can create opportunities for employees to change their jobs without needing to start the green card case all over again. 
And that is tied to the visa bulletin phenomenon known as retrogression. And as that relates and connects into the immigration law provisions known as AC-21 portability. AC-21 green card portability comes into play when the green card case has reached the last stage, the I-45 filing, provided that the I-45 has remained pending for at least 180 days post the time the day it was received by the USCIS. Once you reach the 180-day point, the green card case no longer depends solely on the job offer contained in the labor certification and the I-140 filed by the sponsoring employer. That case can remain eligible for approval through an alternative job offer, provided that the new job offer is in the same or similar job classification as the job described in the labor certification. So where that ties into the visa bulletin is that the visa bulletin cutoff dates have a significant impact on how long the I-45 case is going to remain pending with the USCIS. As we explained in the beginning of this teleconference, in order to file the I-45, the priority date for the case must be earlier than the cutoff date in the visa bulletin, or the visa bulletin SAC for current, but visa numbers are not assigned to a case when it's filed. The visa number is assigned at the time of the case approval, and the visa and the I-45 cannot be approved unless there is a visa number for the case. So what happens is, if the cutoff dates move forward, and then they moved backward, which they can do because of what's known as retrogression, we then end up with a period in time when we have a large number of I-45 cases that are simply pending at the USCIS and can't be approved. And we have this happened in the summer of 2007, and it's happening now. So we have a large group of people with cases that are just pending. They're AC-21 eligible. They can keep going and perhaps get their cases approved through a new job. And employers need to be aware of that because that can work for them and against them. And I think what Kevin and Dana had just explained when they talked about the two months of visa bulletin that you have a link to, the December 2011 and the September 2012, that's exactly what we saw is the numbers. There was a cutoff date and then it became unavailable. So that's the example where Dana is talking about retrogression because they have filed the 485, they've got the employment authorization card, they have the advance parole, and now they're ready to move forward. So, Kevin. And they've all hit 180 days. And they've all hit the 180 days at this point. Exactly. So, Kevin, so this whole concept of retrogression in AC21, how can the employer be a smart employer and try to make hay while the sun shines? Right. Well, AC21 presents a, a lot of uh, opportunities, both for employers and employees. And employers really need to handle AC21 strategically, I think. Um, and as Dana had mentioned, you know, there was uh, a lot of forward movement for a lot of uh, individuals to file adjustment applications in the beginning of, uh, of 2012. Um, up until like uh, you know March, I guess, and and those cases have been pending. Uh, the ones that did not get approved, they've been pending since retrogression, and now we're coming on to a, up to a point where a lot of these people are being uh, are are getting AC21 eligibility. So uh, let's talk about some of those opportunities here. Um, employers can, as we had mentioned before, they can benefit by promoting internally some of their own uh, uh, employees that are sponsored for the green card into higher level positions. As long as you're meeting the AC21 requirements, and uh, I know we mention this often, but AC21 has no regulations, so we're really only dealing with three requirements, which are uh, 45 has been pending 180 days or more, the new job is in the same or similar occupational classification, and the underlying I-140 is an approved and valid uh, immigrant petition. So as long as you're meeting those three requirements, um, 
you can promote from within your uh, your workers to higher level positions because it's the same or similar occupation, presumably, and you're meeting the other requirements of AC21. Uh, promotions could also be a change. Well, uh, the job change could be uh, not necessarily a promotion, but a lateral move or a geographic relocation, uh, which might be particularly relevant for uh, IT consulting companies. Um, but you you know. The, the flexibility created by AC21 is something that employers should utilize in order to increase retention of the employees they want to keep. And um, just another point about, uh, about AC21, not only are you going to be able to retain the, the talent that you've cultivated all these years, but also it pre presents an opportunity, AC20, AC21 presents an opportunity to hire new employees without, without having to go through the process of doing a new labor and a new I-140 and to be on the hook for a financial obligation for an ability to pay on a new I-140. Um, so if other employers out in the market are not handling AC21 strategically, it's an opportunity for you to get some, uh, some talent without having to go through the same process. <laughs> Um, so you're talking about poaching from each other. So you should be the one that people poach with. And I think Kevin makes a very important point, which is most companies don't realize that you can take advantage of AC21 portability for an employee who's already been working with you for years and years when there's been a promotion or an internal job change. Because often I get this consultation, as we all do, which says, well, of course, we don't have to file AC21 portability if I'm with the same employer, right? And the answer is wrong. You are allowed to do it. And most companies Absolutely. don't do it because they presume you're less likely to get an RFE from USCIS because you're already working in the same company and you've been promoted. Or they think that they can't change the person's job because they're locked into the labor certification job. And the person, of course, anxious to move up in their career is then going to look for a new job with a new employer. Well, be smart. And if the person's good and could be promoted, then AC21 will facilitate that. Yeah, I think, yeah, and I think communication is really critical, I think, between uh, a, an employer who's using AC21 strategically and, and their employees. Uh, it is a double-edged sword because employers out there could lose employees to other uh, other companies because the, the whole point of AC21 is to create some flexibility for the, the, the 45 applicant who's been pending a really long time. Um, but again, you know, the employers can, can come up with policies and an incentive system to increase employer retention based on uh, based on AC21. Okay, great. So, Dana, any more complex issues on the visa bulletins that you'd like to touch upon? Yeah, I'll, I will briefly touch on retrogression and why, because people are just endlessly confused, and it is, it, and it is confusing, on how in the world the cutoff dates can move forward and backward, because everyone thinks of it more as a processing date that, okay, the government has gotten through a certain bunch of cases, and that's the one that they're processing on. And so then how in the world can go backwards because, you know, they should have done the earlier cases. But it's not like that because it's all about supply and demand. So the visa bulletin cutoff dates, as we said before, they control both the back door with respect to what cases can be approved as well as the front door of which cases can be filed. And visa numbers are all allocated for a particular fiscal year and they have to be used in that year. Thus, the, the Department of State sets the cutoff dates based upon estimates of demand, and they have to establish cutoff dates that will allow for all the visa numbers to be used in a particular year, or to try to make sure they're all used in a particular year, but they also are supposed to kind of spread them out over the year to avoid running out of numbers by the end, like what you see in September with the unavailable. That's not really ideally how it's all supposed to work. So they have this complex balance with 
the estimates tied to the numbers of existing filings and other considerations and USAS processing times, etc. So there are times when they will advance the numbers, uh, sometimes significantly, in order to generate some demand in a particular category if they don't think there's really enough to use all the numbers. But once they have enough of those cases, or if they maybe were a little off in their estimates and moved it too far forward, once they see that the supply and demand are matching better, they then may kind of close that door and move the date backward. That's what causes retrogression and results in those situations where people have filed their I-45s and are simply pending sometimes for just a number of months, sometimes years, particularly like with the 2007 cases. Some of those cases are still pending all this time later because the priority dates are simply not available. Okay, thanks, Dana. And I know we wanted to talk about a whole bunch of more things dealing because people ask the question all the time about what Dana has referred to as the rollover, trickle down and spill across. You know, if there are unused numbers in EB1, do they roll over to EB2 and EB3? And the unused numbers in EB4, which is the employment-based first preference, second preference, third preference, EB4 and 5 are at the fourth and fifth preferences. It does work that way. But this year, because of the Department of State having already allocated more numbers uh, and finally gotten a clarification, that's why the September uh, bulletin, as both Kevin and Dana explained, became unavailable for India and EB2 as well. So as we understand, the events in the fiscal 2012, which gets over on September 30th of this year, um, and the new fiscal year starts every year on October 1st, um, is we saw in the September 2012 visa bulletin that there are many aspects of the visa, immigrant visa numbers that are unpredictable. Understanding the unpredictability will help you as employers understand some of the anxiety which is faced by your employees. Employees will obviously want to make sure that the I-485 case is filed at the earliest point of eligibility because it has huge incidental benefits like the employment authorization document, the EAD and the advance parole. So they don't need to wait in line for the visa at a consular post abroad. And the experience with the forward movement of priority dates followed by retrogression uh, makes it even more stressful for people because they don't know how long the process will be finally wrapped up. We are able to obtain reliable visa bulletin predictions from time to time, and we always post this information on Murthy.com and in the Murthy Bulletin, and Charlie Oppenheim, who had just shared the information with us, uh, in fact, as of today, as of, I guess, end of, end of August for the se month of September and beyond, I know Dana is dying to say something. No, I just, we do have the updated information, which we got on August 27th. Um, and what he has said is that, first of all, he expects to release the October Visa Bulletin around September 10th. And he is uh, working on his calculations and predictions for the future visa bulletins and will include some of that information in the October visa bulletin. And also, he clarified he had earlier given some predictions that the EB2 cutoff date for India and China will be at a point in either August or September 2007. And he's now stating that those are essentially the best case scenario. So apparently, it that may even be a little optimistic. 
maybe we can do a little article or a blurb or something, post something for the multi.com bulletin to show that we've been in touch with people to help companies and employees get the latest information. Um, again, on behalf of Dana DeLotte, Kevin Andrews, myself, and the entire Multi Law Firm team, we thank you so much for joining us in today's teleconference on immigrant visa numbers, the visa bulletin, tracking, and all of the issues. Our goal is to help you as a business move forward, attract and retain your best employees so that you can continue to succeed and thrive as a business. And with the incredible smart team that we have at the firm, we can handhold and guide you so that you can continue to be a part and we can be your team in this process. As I said, we're always mindful to try to wrap this up in 40, within 30 to 40 minutes. It's about 38 minutes right now. And thank you very much. Look forward to taking care of you. You have a wonderful rest of the day.